I want to read you this quote. And when I found this quote this week, it set me back to think about what God might want to do in this place. Only once in a lifetime comes the privilege of helping to build a church that will stand for generations in the community for which it is built. When we build, let us think that we build forever. Let it not be for present delight nor present use alone. Let it be such work that our ancestors will thank us and that men to come will say, See, this is what our fathers did for us. This is what our fathers did for us. As generational torches are passed down in the life of this church, we need to do such a work for God that when the torch is passed from generation to generation, they are reminded, this is what our fathers did for us. This is what the people who were here before us did so that we could have what we have now and what we can give to somebody else down the road. Paul is writing the letter to the Corinthians, and Corinth was a messed up church, and they needed to understand a lot about ministry and a lot about maturity. But they also needed to get healthy. They were a sick church. They had a lot of spiritual disease in Corinth. And he says in chapter 3 and verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now Paul talks about children in this book. He talks about a field and he talks about a building. All three of those metaphors imply something that starts out small but grows. A field is planted, a small seed is planted, but the intention is if you water it and nurture it and fertilize it and take care of it, it will begin to grow and you'll begin to bear fruit. A child that gets proper nourishment will begin to grow. A building that is constructed properly will begin to take form and grow. I am committed to church growth, but not at the expense of church health. I think a lot of churches have deceived themselves by large numbers and think that they have grown a great church, when in reality they've grown a church that's 20 miles high, 8 miles wide, and 6 inches deep. What we have to do if we're to grow the kind of church that God wants us to grow is we have to grow a church that is not only large, but healthy. It needs to be a healthy church. And so I want us to look at the hindrances to church growth and health. The hindrances to church growth and health. Obviously, Paul has two hindrances that can be summed up. The hindrances can be summed up in two ways. Number one, carnality. Carnality kills a church. A church will never impact a community if the spiritual temperature of that church is not hot for God. 
Carnality will kill a church. Worldly wisdom will kill a church. Trying to run a church according to world systems and world thoughts will kill a church. Now, it does not mean that the church shouldn't be organized. It means that God's ways are not man's ways. That God's way of growing and blessing and using a people are different than a Fortune 500 company. And we have to think differently. The boundaries that God gives us are contained within the Word of God. Now, you'll notice in your notes that over the last 25 years, the landscape of the church has changed. Denominations are declining. Denominations are splitting and falling apart. All mainline denominations seem to be in trouble. Church growth in America is stagnant for all practical purposes. There are churches growing, but the church as a whole is flat, stagnant. There's little difference between the choices that, according to George uh, Gallup, that the choices that Christians make and non-Christians make. So I want to give you about eight or nine characteristics and factors that are threatening the health of the church. Because what we have is we have tares that have been sown among the wheat. And if we're not careful and if we don't recognize these, some of these are very obvious, but if we don't recognize these and stand against them, we will lose everything that God wants to do in the life of this church. Number one, truth has become relative. Truth has become relative. We live in a society of relative thinking and the culture does not want to emphasize absolutes and right and wrong and principles. We're hearing a lot of discussion these days about the rule of law. And when there is no rule of law, there is anarchy. When you do not operate by the laws of society, then it's anarchy in that society. Same thing goes in the church. If you do not operate by absolutes, then nobody sins and nobody does anything wrong. What you do is your business and what I do is my business and there's no standard by which to judge that. Secondly, standards of holiness have been compromised. You don't hear a lot these days about holiness. You hear a lot about being happy and being joyful and being excited. But you don't hear a lot about holiness before God. Sin is being ignored in the church. I read a magazine this week that the entire magazine was committed to dealing with all the preachers that have fallen over the last ten years. It is sad to say that the Christian community has such a black eye because we have not upheld a standard of holiness and we have not held our ministers and our membership to a standard of holiness that puts us above reproach by a lost world. Thirdly, believing that transfer growth is real growth. Uh, We bought the lie that transfer growth is real growth. Now, if we were in Atlanta or in the Atlanta metropolitan area, let's say we were in, uh, well, I remember when I moved to Atlanta in 1980, Alpharetta was a little bitty small dot on the map. I mean, there were like three businesses there and nothing else, two-lane roads everywhere. Now if you go to Alpharetta, if you're not going 105 miles an hour, you're going to get run over. Every road is six lane. Every street's got houses on top of houses, businesses on top of businesses. The largest mall in Georgia is located just outside of Alpharetta. I mean, the place is just boom. Listen, you could have been a church dead as a doornail in Alpharetta, and if you just waited long enough, they would have run up on you and joined. Leaving the inner city. 
moving out to the outskirts. That's how Cobb County grew. That's how Cherokee County is growing now. And you look at churches like First Baptist Woodstock and you look at churches like that and God has blessed them and many of them are doing a great job in evangelism. But I want to tell you, a lot of their growth is just people leaving one Baptist church, going to another Baptist church that's now closer to where they live. And they're not really reaching Atlanta. If Atlanta was growing spiritually the way that quote-unquote churches are growing spiritually, Atlanta would be in better shape than it is right now. But you cannot build a Christian community environment at the expense of another church. That's not the way you grow a church. You don't grow a church by sucking the life out of another church. I made a commitment when I came here that I would not visit anybody that visited us from another Baptist church. I had a meeting with a pastor one time, and I was telling him that, so I'm just going to tell you something. I, I, anybody from your church that visits, I'm not going to visit them because I have a commitment. I'm not trying to grow at the expense of your church. He said, oh, that's my commitment too. Come to find out, he visits our members in the hospital. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's his business. I just know one thing. If I've got to think that I'm growing a church because I'm taking people out of another church, I've deceived myself on what growing a church is all about. I'd a whole lot rather have a hundred lost people come than a hundred people come from another Baptist church. Because I think, although we may can minister to some people who come from other churches, our goal is to grow a church through evangelism, not through transfers. Thirdly, fourthly, wherever we are. Focusing on one generation. We've already talked about that. That's enough on that one. Number five, obsession with self-fulfillment. Obsession with self-fulfillment. One author says, We are a generation raised on jack-in-the-box hamburgers, diet Pepsi, excuse me, Jim, not home cooking and whole milk. We have narrowed our scope of vision to the small picture, our lives, our homes, our careers, our bodies, and our hobbies. The obsession with self-fulfillment. What's in it for me? Number six, the redefining of the family. The redefining of the family. Now, I believe a family can be one or more. If you're a single adult, you are a family of one. If you're married, you're a family of more. But I do not believe that the family, biblically described, is two people of the same sex. Now, the culture says that's what a family is. That's not what the Word says. When God created Adam and Eve, He did not create Adam and Steve. Everybody understand that? And we've redefined family, and living together is not a family. And sharing the same address is not a family. And trying it out is not a family. What is a family is two people that have decided under God to be married and to raise children in that environment. That's a family. Now, I think the family's been redefined in such a way that statistics tell us that today, with all the emphasis on parenting and everything else, today, 40%, parents spend 40% less time with their kids today than they did a generation ago. 40% less time. I want to tell you something, folks. Some of us are too busy. We're too busy worrying about a bigger house and a nicer car and more stuff and not worried enough about the greatest thing that God ever gave us, and that's our family. Number seven, the privatization of sin. 
The privatization of sin. No longer does anybody have to fear getting caught in a pornographic bookstore or buying a magazine. You can get it on the Internet now. And sin has come flooding into the homes of America. And somebody can come to church and sing the songs and go through the motions and play the games and get the language and all the while alone at a computer in their office or in their home can be absorbed in immorality. And nobody ever sees it. And nobody ever knows it. The privatization of sin. Number eight, generic church. Generic church. By that I simply mean the church doesn't believe anything. Whatever you want it to believe, that's what it believes. Now, I think when somebody joins a church, they ought to find out what it believes about the virgin birth, about the blood atonement, about the sinless nature of Christ, about the resurrection. What does that church believe about the essentials? What does that church believe about the Holy Spirit? You can go to some churches, they don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. I mean, seriously, I've been in some of those. And, you know, they're so scared of the Holy Spirit that they had locked the doors that they thought He was coming. And we have to check it out to find out what does this church believe? What do they stand for? What are they willing to go to the wall for? Now, a Big Mac is a Big Mac in Albany, Georgia, or Anaheim, California. I mean, you get a Big Mac, it's going to be a Big Mac anywhere. Green beans are green beans anywhere in the country. But a Southern Baptist church is not a Southern Baptist church the same everywhere. There are a lot of different Southern Baptist churches. There are Southern Baptist churches that don't believe the Word of God. There are Southern Baptist pastors that don't believe in miracles. There are Southern Baptist pastors that do not believe in the resurrection. There are Southern Baptist pastors that do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. And they pastor churches, and most of them never get checked on what they believe because nobody ever goes to the trouble of finding out. There are pastors in every denomination, on every level, in every community that do not believe the Word of God. And when you join a church, you need to make sure that one thing, if nothing else, whether you like the music or you like anything else, the facilities or where you have to park, the one thing that has to be essential in finding a church in the 21st century is does that church believe the Word? Does that church stand on the Word of God as its final authority? Now, we are gardeners in God's field. That's the second thing. He says you are God's field. The Greek there means a cultivated field or a planted field. Not a barren field, but this is a working field. He says, you are God's work in progress. You are God's work that is being cultivated. And the first thing he talks about there is the called out workers in verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Who am I and who is Apollos that we should be the cause of a quarrel? While we're just God's servants, each of us with certain special abilities, and with our help you believe. My work was to plant the seed in your hearts, and Apollos' work was to water it. But it was God, not we, who made the garden grow in your hearts. The person who does the planting or watering isn't very important. But God is important because He is the one who makes things grow. Apollos and I are working as a... This is today's English version, by the way. Apollos and I are working as a team with the same aim through each of us though each of us will be rewarded for his own hard work. Paul emphasized the Lord, not the laborers. We get caught up in the laborers. 
Southern Baptist life, we get so caught up in, oh, that's old brother so-and-so's church. That's brother so-and-so's church. Have you been to brother so-and-so's church? That's so-and-so's church. So-and-so's a pastor of that church. We get caught up in the laborers. Paul got caught up in the Lord. You know, the, the laborer needs to go to the background. The Lord needs to come to the forefront. Now, there are two things that he talks about here. First of all, they were simply servants of the Lord. Verse 5. Now, that word servant is an interesting word. It's the word from which we get the word deacon. Diakonai, servant, minister. And it was used of an attendant or a table waiter or someone who did a menial task. Here's Paul, which, who we have elevated, the great apostle Paul. And Paul says, I'm just a table waiter. I just do menial tasks. My job, in light of all that God's doing, is such a menial task. I just run errands. That's the way one translation puts it. I'm just an errand boy. Verse 5, Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave us opportunity to each of us. What Paul says, look, just Apollos and I, we're just two guys. Not two guys, two girls, two guys, a girl, and a pizza, but we're just two guys. And we're two guys looking for opportunities to do our chores. That's what ministry is, folks. It's finding a job and doing it. Finding what needs to be done, putting your hand to the plow and getting the job done. Now, not only were they simply servants, but they were partners in verse 6. They were working together. <clears throat> they were working together. Notice that Paul says, I planted. That means to set out in the earth or to implant if you take this word and use it figuratively, Paul is saying, I implanted doctrine. I'm the one that taught you doctrine. Now this is important because this is two sides of a coin. Apollos watered. Apollos took the doctrine that I taught you and showed you how to apply it in your daily living. I planted doctrine in you Apollos watered that so that it would grow in you and develop in you so that you would live the life that I taught you to live. Paul was a minister on the run. He was going from church to church to church. He planted Apollos watered. He says, we're two messengers, two preachers, but we've only got one message. And that was to teach you and to train you how to live for God. We're, we're different people. Paul was different from Apollos. Apollos was different from Paul. They were different from James and from Simon Peter. All the disciples were unique. The early teachers in the church and teachers today are unique. I mean, I listen to some of these guys and I get depressed thinking that you have to listen to me every week. You know, I'm riding down the road, I'm listening to Chuck Swindoll, and I'm thinking, why in the world can I, you know, where does he get this stuff? You know, who's he, where's he getting this? I mean, I'm just trying to find out. I'm praying for the day Swindoll goes off the radio so I can steal his stuff. <laughs> I mean, just to be honest. <laughs> you know, I listen to these guys and I think, well, these guys are incredible. But we're all messengers. Different styles, different techniques, different personalities, but all messengers with one message. If you listen to the message... It's the same. Jesus Christ. And the message is focused, although it takes on different forms. Now, uh, David sang this morning, Field of Souls. I want to give you, this is one of those, you hear it and then you see it. 
So I want you to turn your attention to the screens and I want to give you a little bit of a visual tonight about what it means for us to be different people working in God's field.
A lot of different people, one message. Young and old, a little non-traditional, some very traditional, but we're partners. The street preacher, the prayer warrior, the missionary, the Sunday school teacher, the Christian group, whoever they are, wherever they are, we're partners. Some plant some water, but we're just God's servants. I want you to look at Paul's work in chapter 18 of Acts. We're going to go through this very quickly, Acts 18. We're going to look at the difference in Paul and in Apollos. And you'll see how Paul instilled doctrine and then how Apollos comes back and reasons with them and helps them to apply it. Acts 18, verse 4 And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, verse 4, by reasoning. The first work that Paul did was by reasoning with people. He would take familiar Old Testament passages and apply them to Jesus Christ and say, this is the Messiah, you need to follow him. Secondly, by complete devotion to the Word, verse 5. Verse 5, that little phrase means literally pressed by the Word. When he's reasoning, he's saying thoroughly something. Now, when there's a complete devotion to the Word in verse 5, he is compelled, pressed by the Word, driven by the Word, to do what God's called him to do. Thirdly, by solemnly testifying in verse 5. Solemnly testifying. It means to declare emphatically. Paul didn't say, Well, I think, I feel, I kind of hope, or it might be. Paul was emphatic about what he said. Verse 6, by staying focused. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. What Paul was doing there is following what Christ said in Matthew 7. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Paul said when the Jews rejected him, he came to the point where God's Spirit confirmed to him, Paul, that's it. Forget it. You go work with the Gentiles. I'll do something else, but you go focus on them. Paul never got into meaningless, endless arguments and debates. He presented the gospel, he called for a decision, and he moved on. Now, that was his work. Then he taught them the truth, verse 11, teaching the Word of God among them. Now, Paul taught doctrine. Apollos had a different work. You know, Apollos is an interesting person. There's, I've never heard a church named after Apollos. I've never heard a baby named after Apollos. Apollos, to me, is the hero of those who realize that religion is not enough. 
Apollos is the hero of those who find out that it's more than religion, it's a relationship with Christ. Lloyd Ogilvie, I love the quote by Lloyd Ogilvie. He says, My passion is to introduce religious people to the living Lord and help them receive His power. There's no limit to what we could do to change the world, share the faith, and help people if religious people in our churches were filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 24, the characteristic and description of Apollos. He was mighty in the Scriptures. This man was a student of the Word of God. Verse 25, fervent in spirit means boiling over. Apollos was boiling over. I mean, he was on fire for God. Nobody had to tell him it's time to get propped up. Nobody had to beg him to go to anything. I mean, he just did it. Apollos was boiling over. Acts 18.27, when he had arrived... He greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now remember, they believed. Paul has taught them doctrine. Now he helps those who have believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos did three things. First of all, he ministered to believers. He ministered to believers in verse 27. Secondly, he refuted those who tried to resist the Lord. He not only ministered to believers, he addressed and refuted those who, who were resisting God. And thirdly, he taught apologetics and doctrine. Verse 28, the last part. He was well versed in Scripture. He powerfully refuted. Now, Apollos watered means to irrigate or to furnish drink. Apollos was that refreshing person that came in after Paul slammed them with the doctrine and said, this is the way it is, this is what you've got to do. And Apollos came in and refreshed them, furnished water, irrigated so the roots could go deep, so the life could be transformed. Second thing that you see is God is the source of growth. Through whom you came to believe. I want to remind you, you're not saved because of a man or a woman. You're saved because Jesus Christ saves you, and we are simply the servants that God uses. Have you ever noticed that Paul and Apollos never went by doctor or brother? You think at the First Baptist Church in Ephesus they called him Brother Paul? <laughs> brother Paul, could you come over here and see us? You know, Paul never got hung up. Imagine the books that Paul could have written if he had just had some degrees. Imagine the impact he could have made if he had just had all the denominational credentials. Paul did not get hung up on titles. We get so hung up. I've met people, and you say, well, hey, so-and-so, you don't know me well enough to call me by my first name. Well, excuse me for living. I called Jesus by his first name. Are you bigger than Jesus? I call him Jesus. He calls me Michael. We've got a pretty good, you know. He doesn't call me Dr. Cat. <laughs> he doesn't call me Pastor. He calls me Michael. Sometimes he calls me Knothead. <laughs> I'm amazed at how hung up we get. Those of us who labor sometimes get hung up with everybody recognizing our resumes. 
Hey, the only resume that matters is the one that God approves. That's the only one that matters. I've met a lot of people that are dying by degrees. You'll get that in a little while. Dying by degrees. Russell, did you catch that one? Okay, good. Now we can go on. God gets the glory for the growth. Verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. Jesus said in John 4 that already he who reaps and is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. John 4:36. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What the Word of God tells us is that God gets the glory because we work together and then we worship together for what God has done through us working together under His Lordship. Now, the last thing is the growth that God expects. The growth that God expects. Let me give you three quick things here. First of all, God's provided the tools, spiritual gifts that He's given each of us. By the way, every spiritual gift is in some way related to evangelism. Every spiritual gift somehow balances out toward the church ministering and working toward evangelism. Secondly, he's given us laborers. He's equipped the laborers. God's Holy Spirit equips us to do the work that he's called us to do. And thirdly, he's provided the seed. Matthew 13 tells us that the seed is the Word of God. The problem is not with the tools. The problem is not with the seed. The problem is with the laborers. Are we willing to use the tools that God's given us and the seed that's God given us to reap the harvest that he wants us to reap? First of all, under this, God brings the growth, but he needs me to work the field. God caused the increase, verse 6 says. It means to grow or to enlarge, literally or figuratively, to enlarge. God caused the increase. Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given me. Acts 18.10, I have many people in this city. Let me tell you why churches don't grow and why churches aren't healthy. It's because they're maintenance-minded. They get caught up in form and in structure and in committees and they spend all their lives in the kitchen and in committees and doing stuff to maintain and they never get out and do the things that you have to do to grow. And it's easy for a staff to do. It's easy for a people to do. We can get so busy in what we do around here that we forget that we are supposed to be other-centered and others meaning people that have not yet come to this church. Secondly, God measures the field, the size of the crop and growth. It is not my job, nor is it your job, to determine the size of the church. Our job is to give God good seed, good soil, good souls to work with. We don't determine the size of this church. And we can limit it. But our job is to give to God our best and let Him determine the size of the ministry of this church. You see, if we take care of the depth of our lives, God will take care of the breadth of our ministry. Now, that means to me that what anybody else thinks about this church is not important. What God thinks about this church is supremely important. It doesn't matter what any other church in town, it doesn't matter what the denomination, it doesn't matter what my peers 
think about this church, the only thing that matters is, are we doing what pleases God? To the best of our understanding, are we seeking to please God with what we do? And so I want you to look at the fruit. When God looks at a church, He looks for a certain kind of fruit. And when the fruit is present, God is pleased. This is the fruit of a healthy church. Number one, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. Number two, the fruit of holiness. Romans 6, 22. The fruit of holiness. Romans 6, 22. The fruit of giving. Romans 15, 26. The fruit of giving. Romans 15, 26. The fruit of good works. Colossians 1, 10. The fruit of good works. The fruit of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. And the fruit of souls. Romans chapter 1 and verse 13. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of holiness. The fruit of giving. The fruit of good works. The fruit of praise. And the fruit of souls. Warren Wiersbe says, along with spiritual growth, there should be a measure of numerical growth. Fruit has in it the seed of more fruit. If the fruit of our ministry is genuine, it will eventually produce more fruit and much fruit to the glory of God. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, I want to ask you to listen, and then we're going to be through in just a few minutes. A healthy church is not about what we do on Sunday morning. I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight, okay? But a healthy church is not about what we do on Sunday morning. Sunday morning church in America is pretty good. Sunday night church in America has collapsed. Discipleship is in a tailspin. Sunday school is having a meltdown across America. It's not about just showing up. Jack Hayford says that the problem with the American church today is we have people who come for show but refuse to grow. That's a great statement. People who come for show but refuse to grow. And while America's churches have had a facelift over the last 20 years in worship, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we more holy? Are we more committed? Are we more disciplined? Is our devotion deeper? Is our prayer life better? Is our Bible study more consistent? Because it's not drive for show. It's put for dough. It's not just coming for the show on Sunday morning. It's getting down deep in the, the, into the development of our lives around the Word of God and around principles that God's laid out. And you can't do that in one hour a week. Your friends can't do that. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. But you, your friends cannot do that in one hour a week or every first and third Sunday or second and fourth. No way. That's like saying I can eat one meal every two weeks and I don't have to eat anymore. Well, if you go to the pig-out buffet, you can probably do that, but... Someone has said that our people are converted in every way but their mindset, their lifestyles, and their values. It is called the unconverted converted. On the mission field, they call them rice Christians. 
Those who will come, if you're providing free food and rice, they will come and they'll listen to a gospel message. If, if you've ever been around a rescue mission, they'll listen to the gospel if you just feed them something. And they'll get saved a lot if you just feed them something. But there's a basic principle you have to understand here. What you reach people with, that's what you have to do to keep them. And if it's bells and whistles, then you've got to always buy bigger bells and bigger whistles. The only thing that will keep people that you reach is the Word of God. Because it is the only thing that is unchanging. Styles change, interests change, tastes change. But the Word of God is unchanging. Jesus had the same problem. He fed the crowd. He fed the masses. They kept following Him. They followed Him to the boat. He tried to get away from the crowd. They followed Him around the lake. They wouldn't stay away from Him. He was feeding them. He was healing people. But when He started turning around to the crowd and talking about the cross and about sacrifice and about discipleship, over and over in the Gospels it says, and many left and followed Him no more. We are not going to build a church that impacts the world by just having Sunday morning, by just coming for the show. You and I have to work together to help the membership of this church to understand if they're ever going to count for God, they have got to do more than give an hour a week to the person that they say is their Lord and Savior. That is not enough. I have serious questions about somebody who does not have physical disabilities or inabilities that says all I need is an hour or two a month if they've ever had a personal, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if I have had a life-changing experience, then an hour is not going to get it for me. Or an hour and 15 minutes or whatever it goes. I will have to feel compelled to want more, to desire something more, to go deeper with God. And I believe the way we're going to do that and grow a healthy church is to reaffirm our commitment to the Scriptures. That if we will say to the Lord, Lord, we are not going to get into show and tell, we're not going to get into flash and dance, we're going to do the basics well. And the basics means when we teach the Bible, we're going to teach it without apology. I believe that grows a healthy church. Now that's slower growth, but it's healthy growth. If we do a lot of series on stuff that everybody seems to be interested in, then we can get a crowd, but then they'll leave. The way you grow a church is by day by day, week by week, year by year, Teaching the Word of God. Keith Drury, who is a Methodist writer, says this, I bet in the next decade we see a great back-to-the-Bible movement. There is early evidence of this already. Some pastors will launch top-level schools and classes with tough standards of homework, tests, and even grades. <laughs> Boy, I'd love to give some of our members a grade. The Sunday school will get back to the Bible as its authority and the let's share opinions and pool our ignorance classes will disappear. Bless God. I want to be, Lord, let me live to see that day. Pastors will get tired of limiting their primary ministry to entry-level seekers and will ratchet up the heat on their sermons. 
we could face a total resurgence of Bible teaching in the next ten years from the pulpit and the classroom. How else will we lead people to spiritual growth and commitment if we don't? The Word of God, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts us open and it heals us at the same time. It's honey, it's bread, it's meat, it's water, it's everything we need to live. We don't have to do anything fancy. We don't have to build any trapeze. I've joked about the fact that in the new building, I'm going to come out of the balcony on a guy wire like Garth Brooks to the stage. You know, just going to come down. We don't have to do that kind of stuff. We don't have to have that. You know what? All we got to do is just preach Jesus. When we preach Jesus, we'll grow a healthy church. And hungry people with good appetites will attract hungry people that have been eating junk food. And a lot of people in the Christian community are feeding themselves on junk food. And God has called the church to give them meat to eat.